Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to The Catch with John Fisher on Blog Talk Radio, connecting life to faith. We're just trying to get it together, trying to help the fellow can make it better Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. Do you think we can make it better? Uh, it depends, I think, on how we try and do that. Um, because I think, you know, if we're following the Lord and the Holy Spirit, Maybe we can, you know, but uh, if we're following uh, our own inclinations and uh, the powers that be and the powers that we see around us in the world and we get, you know, sucked into that, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know that we can make things much better. So it's a a crazy world, Um, and we have a great time talking here on blog talk radio because what we want to do is connect faith uh to life we connect our faith to the culture we want to be thinking about our christianity when we think about the world not not a divide we don't want to live in a divided world we want to live in one world not two one world where the kingdom of god exists in the midst of everything else, and we can follow that. And what does that look like? Those are the questions we love to uh, explore here. And we have some wonderful guests and uh, a very, a very fascinating guest today. His name is uh, Terry Mattingly. Uh, we've had him on before, but it was quite a while. Some of you might not remember. Terry writes the nationally syndicated on religion column for the Universal Syndicate and is a senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He has worked as a reporter and religion columnist at the Rocky Mountain News in Denver. That's when I met him back in the late 70s. And the Charlotte Observer and the Charlotte News in 1991, Mattingly began teaching at Denver Seminary While teaching, he has continued to write the weekly on religion column for Universal, which is sent to about 350 newspapers in North America. That's significant. He is the founder and editor of the Get Religion website that critiques the mainstream media's coverage of religion news. Terry Welcome back to Blog Talk Radio, The Catch. Glad to be here. I think you and I first met, I think the first time we met face-to-face was you opened for the late, very great Mark Hurd at a church in Denver in about 1986 or 7. Wow. And... Yeah, I remember sitting around discussing guitar strings and all kinds of interesting topics, but that's, <laughs> I, that's not I for tonight. Think, 
Okay. So you you wouldn't yeah. have been because uh, I'm not sure how old you are. You wouldn't have been involved at the uh, in the Estes Park Rocky Mountain High thing that went on every I summer. I went to. I went up there to cover it one year. Um, cover story about it called uh, that they ran in the Rocky Mountain News magazine with the headline, The Righteous Stuff. <laughs> and I, I'll always, the, the main, I remember there was a very good Steve Taylor set in that, that yeah. time I was there. And I, um, I also remember Phil Keggy came out and did a blistering set off his album that was kind of a tribute to the Beatles. And after one song, stepped up to the mic and said, we'd love to do some of the old stuff for you tonight, but we're not going to. And then went off back into what he wanted to play. I thought that was kind of a brave, brave little slap at the evangelical subculture. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's great. Somehow I have you, I guess I think about Rocky Mountain News and I think about SS Park and, and, uh, I may, I don't know, maybe I met you there, but uh, uh, that's cool. A Mark Her opening for Mark Her Was that a little tiny audience? <laughs> I remember Actually, one of those. Cher- Cherry Hills Community Church is a pretty large church. Okay, all right. And I, I remember right. several hundred folks. I was at one concert with Mark where I think there there were under 12 people there. That and, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was that was um, that was quite an experience. Actually, Mark poured his guts out to those twelve people. I couldn't believe it. It was just yeah. uh, beautiful, beautiful to watch. Didn't matter. Didn't matter to him. Has, has anybody has anybody ever summed up one of our cultural dilemmas better than Mark Hurd saying, "I'm too sacred for the sinners, and the saints wish I would leave." <laughs> no. <laughs> No, he was great for that. Well, you know, we here at the catch, we have we are reestablishing a relationship. We might get around to this by the end of our time today, uh, with some of those early Jesus music pioneers. Um uh, we've had Paul Clark on numerous times and Nancy Honeytree and uh we uh you know we're uh, Randy Stonehill is one of our favorites. And um, mm-hmm. we're we're really trying to connect those guys with the millennials, and that's been a really fun thing to watch. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we got to get down to what I want to do here. But I'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> one of our new programs, we're going to have a millennial interview uh, the Jesus Music people one at a time and ask them the questions they want to ask them. What can they find out about, you know, their world and, and what can they find out about this world and how do we, how do we translate um, what was a prophetic voice then uh, to now? Those are the things we're really excited about. Um, But, you know, it was out of music, uh, Terry, that, that I think the Christian subculture formed. And uh, I know for 23 years I wrote that column on the back of CCM because I think I felt responsible 
for for this thing. Huh. And I watched the Christian subculture grow and turn into the moral majority and the Christian coalition and, uh, you know, tied with, uh, tied with, uh, and then the politics comes in big time. Um, lot, and, and suddenly now Christians who were, you know, not really thought about culturally at all uh, are, are now a, we're 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 a, we're a political entity. I mean, uh, political candidates go after us because we're valuable to them through the votes that we bring in. And uh, boy, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how did that happen? Was it did it start with racism or abortion or what? In your estimation, Terry, what? What has led Christians to become so involved in politics uh, that we would actually be courted by candidates for our votes? Well, the, the irony is my, I'm now 68 years old, and my lifetime kind of covers a lot of the spectrum of this. I mean, I am <laughs> a little personal history here. I was active in the Jimmy Carter campaign on the Baylor University campus in 1976 and heard some of the early arguments about that, you know, and Mm. also while doing a degree in the Department of Church and State, my first graduate degree, which was an interdisciplinary degree in theology, political science, history, and law, we were studying how American Christians have related to church-state issues. And the simple fact of the matter is that Baptists, for the most part, I mean, Baptists are one form of evangelicalism, Baptists, for the most part, had avoided organized politics. And Mm -hmm. then here comes the big moment. You get people, like you just said, there are people who insisted they got active because of racism. And there are other people, and this is the camp I fall into, that really believe they got more politicized primarily because of abortion and Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. A A lot of the independent Christian schools that people often point to as racist, a surprising number of those, a friend of mine once wrote a book on this topic, a surprising number of those were interracial. And um, Hmm. black families were having some of the same problems with public schools that white families were. Uh, And I'm not saying that was the norm, but I was saying that it's not unusual. I would also say, of course, that the black church, black evangelicals, had been active in politics for a long time in large part because of the, the role historically that the black pastor has played as a leader and a voice in his community. Mm. And um, so to some degree, white evangelicalism followed the black church in mm. the politics. Wow. But I'm, I'm really convinced that Roe v. Wade is what sent Ronald Reagan. Was Nixon going after evangelicals that much specifically? with his new American South campaign. Uh, yeah, but mm-hmm. not really. He didn't have mm-hmm. he didn't have Jerry Falwell on speed dial. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There was a speed dial at that time. <laughs> but by the time you have Roe v. Wade, you have Ronald Reagan speaking to massive gatherings of evangelicals and saying, You can't yeah. endorse me, but I can endorse you. And from there on, the structures begin to emerge. Right, right. 
um, why is why is political involvement so tempting to Christian leaders? Well, first of all, because there are political issues that directly overlap with centuries of Christian doctrine. So to some degree, the culture has brought these issues to us. Hmm. I mean, evangelicals didn't ask for legalized abortion. Evangelicals didn't ask for the First Amendment and religious liberty to suddenly end up Mm -hmm. being subjects that everybody fought about. I mean, there used to be a time when evangelicals were very pro-church-state separation, even if that kind of was because they were anti-Catholic. But my point here is the, the culture brought the subjects to us. Christians then hmm. reacted to it. Politicians noted them reacting, and then politics, politicians went after them. And this got hmm. more and more and more and more obvious. The, the irony of it all is, meanwhile, if you actually want to understand what's happening in American politics, the Catholic vote is where the action has been, and it has hmm. been for decades. I mean, changing patterns among Catholic voters post Roe v. Wade is really where the swing states of the Midwest and even in Florida have been, you know, at, at stake. Let me give you a question that I, you know, when Trump got elected uh, in 2016, I was teaching at that time at an evangelical institution, and I asked my students, I said, name the state that elected Donald Trump and the voters that put him over the top. And they immediately all jumped and began yelling about white evangelicals and this and that and the other. I went, wait, hold it. You didn't answer my question. Name the state that Donald Trump couldn't be president without. And then finally someone said, well, a bunch of the states up in the Midwest, the upper north, he was not supposed to win, like Wisconsin, you know, and stuff like that. I went, how prominent are evangelicals in those states? And they said, well, not very. And then I said, could he have been elected without Florida? And they all went, no, of course not. He would not have won the presidency without Florida. I said, who cast the crucial votes in Florida that elected Donald Trump? They had no clue because the press hadn't covered it. And Mm -hmm. I told them, well, the answer to that is Latino, evangelical and Pentecostal Christians. Hmm. If you can find anything more ironic than Donald Trump becoming president because of the votes of Latinos, I can't think of anything much more ironic than that. But he doesn't win the presidency without Latino megachurches in Florida. Wow. And the the press is finally catching up with that story, that changing patterns among uh, Latinos, mostly on cultural issues, but yes, on economic issues as well. Latinos are now split pretty much 50-50 between Republicans and Democrats. And if you follow whether those Latinos go to church, and especially if they've converted to Protestantism, Mm -hmm. you find a lot of Republican voters. Well, Mm -hmm. that's off subject, but you see what I'm getting at? The culture brought these subjects to us. Now, whether we responded to them properly or whether some evangelicals have responded to them Heretically, I would even argue, 
that's another subject. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there must be something, you know, I watched in those early days, like you, you brought the abortion thing to light. Um, I watched how big an issue that was on Christian radio all over the country as yeah. I traveled around. And, uh, and then as I was in churches and I heard, actually talked to, to Christians who were really worked up about this thing. And, uh, uh, you know, I, somehow it seemed to me that they thought they could make a difference, that they could actually change the world in some way. Uh, it seems like a small way, but I guess it's easy to get people, you know, concerned about babies. Uh, but I, I don't know. You know, it, it, well, it, it, I, I don't know where that all came from. Oh. Well, it's, it's interesting. Like a lot of moderate to centrist Baptists in Texas, I grew up pro-abortion rights. I would say that at the time I was working for the Carter campaign on the Baylor campus, or not working for them, I was a volunteer, I, I would probably have been to the cultural and theological left of Jimmy Carter on that issue. I was very conservative on a lot of things, but on abortion, I bought the entire church-state issue thing on that. What converted me to the pro-life cause more than anything else was an issue in Sojourner's magazine, an essay by Jesse Jackson arguing Hmm. for abortion as a form of legalized racism, an example of of something that would show us what the government would pay to have babies not exist pay to help them live. And um, I came at the abortion issue, frankly, from the left at that point and have never fit, especially once I converted to Eastern Orthodoxy, I've never fit easily in either political party. And I've been a third party voter now for the last two or three elections and was very outspokenly never Hillary, never Trump during the 2016 mm-hmm. election. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, I would say that if you look at 2,000 years of Christian teaching on moral theology, it's very hard to square yourself with the overwhelming majority of white Democrats. But at the same time, if you look at what the gospel and what the Bible says about Economic justice, the word economic would make a lot of people mad. Um, Just simple justice issues, it's extremely hard to be comfortable with, I would say, with about half of the Republican Party, or maybe over half. Mm -hmm. But the simple fact of the matter right now is that the richest portions of American public life, in corporate terms and clout and the big tech and big money, they're now Democrats, hmm. and you will see that now unfold in the next month as corporate America competes on the Internet mm-hmm. to try to see who can be the most uh, enthusiastic about something like Pride Month. Hmm. Um, when Walmart is scared of, the, of religious liberty and the First Amendment, a lot of American corporations have moved left. Well, 
what would you say do you ever speak uh, just to the average Christian? What, what would you say to the average Christian um, who wants to follow Jesus, represent the kingdom of God? He's an American, you, you know, so he wants to, he cares about his country, so he wants to vote. You know, how how involved do we get in in the political world? Do you give any advice well, out on that? Well, I see no reason to think that politics is even more sinful or fallen than most other major forms of life in America. I mean, if all of God's creation is both glorious and fallen, politics mm-hmm. has got to be right in that mix. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a worthy thing to be involved in politics, certainly to okay. be politically active. But my main message to them would be be very careful and don't allow yourself to get used. And, hmm. I, and I would also say don't talk about doctrine and what the church teaches on these moral and social issues more than you talk about what candidates have promised you they're going to back you. Well, wait a minute. (laughs) You have to say that one more time. That one went by. (laughs) I'd say focus more on what your church actually teaches about moral, social, and cultural issues than you do on praising politicians who claim they're on your side. Oh, great. Because if if you want to help save unborn children, you're going to need to work with black and Latino congregations. Mm-hmm. And if you walk in there with a with a and and you want to split with them because you chose to cast a different vote in a you know in a ballot box than them, you're not going to have any coalitions that are going to reach the poor and are going to reach large parts of our culture. I would also note that if you actually ever want to have an effective coalition to Let's say if the the court does overrule Roe, and this all goes back to the state level, if we're going to have coalitions that attempt to do something constructive in a post-Roe world, we're going to need more coalitions with pro-life Democrats, and most of them are going to be Catholic, Black, or Latino, Hmm. which, which means we're probably going to end up meeting a lot of them in church pews. Well, if you actually want to talk to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But right now, I, I see everybody, I mean, white evangelicalism is where the media is obsessed, and we're all living with that, that mm-hmm. stereotype that 81% of all white evangelicals just love Donald Trump. Christianity Today had a poll about a month before that election that noted that according to their poll, about half the white evangelicals who voted for Trump in the election, not the primaries, in the mm-hmm. election, about half of them wanted to, and about the other half voted for him very reluctantly. Hmm. And it's taken the press a long time. I wrote a post about this recently at Get Religion with a headline, Bravo, the New York Times reports that evangelicals are divided, not united on politics. They finally noticed yes. – that if evangelicals are fighting like cats and dogs about a lot of political issues, doesn't that kind of imply that they weren't all united on Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. Or that maybe some of them voted for him 
reluctantly while others were singing his praises, and that there's actually a lot more diversity and debate among evangelicals. The pastors I know who are scared to address politics or even something like COVID vaccines, the pastors I know that talk about being scared of that, they're scared because they know their congregations are divided over these issues. Yeah. Which is the opposite of all of them marching together in lockstep carrying Trump banners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Maybe if they're the going to lockstep was a little yeah. bit too strong there. Yeah. <laughs> but if they so if they're going to uh, come on any side of issues like that, like the vaccine and COVID and mask wearing and those kinds of things, yeah. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna lose half their congregation, basically. It's but, possible. But they, I read an article recently that said, but boy, they they also might gain the more of the other people that are on the other side. You know, like That's, yeah. Wow, what a what what evangelism <laughs> that would be. You talk about <laughs> preaching to the choir. I mean, John, my 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 conviction on all of this is that just as much as politics, what has happened to us in the last decade or so has just as much to do with the Internet and social media as Mm. it does with Donald Trump. Mm. The ability to scream loud enough and rally people to the same specific flag of some kind has turned a lot of unknown, unattached, evangelical superstar wannabes has turned them into social media giants, and the press Mm -hmm. seems to think they're important. This gets us to January 6th, where once again, I mean, at one point, it was either the Washington Post or the New York Times or both, I think it was the Post, said that the events on January 6th were directly linked to the structures of American evangelical power. Wow. Now, I Mm -hmm. have watched the courtroom stuff. And so far, I haven't seen a single concrete reference of the January 6th planners. Mm-hmm. The planners, for the most part, were people who spoke evangelical but were not active, as best, yeah. best we can tell, the, the, uh, the hooligan types. But my point here is that evangelicalism, you talk about it as a subculture. Well, it's a, it's a culture of institutions, and those institutions are publishing, music, mm. denominations, schools, parachurch groups. Some people mm. date the beginning of the American evangelical movement with Billy Graham, an unknown guy named Billy Graham being hired mm-hmm. as the first full-time employee of Youth for Christ. You know, mm. All of those things are evangelical institutions. And superstars are a big part of evangelicalism, but our superstars tend to come through the parachurch groups and the publishing and the, the giant megachurches. But where this thing has kind of gone off the rail recently is with the world of totally independent evangelicalism. And, mm-hmm. by the way, and Pentecostalism. These are churches that have no ties to any major evangelical groups denominations, schools, seminaries, etc. 
But the press hasn't learned how to tell those people from the Southern Baptists and the Assemblies of God and among blacks, the the Church of God in Christ, you know, and Hmm. some of these major denominations that are kind of the, 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 the backbone and the structure of evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. So I know that's really complex, but that's where I see a lot of the confusion in the press. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we're getting we're getting close to the end here, Terry, and I just want some practical thoughts to uh, people who simply, in the midst of all this stuff, want to follow Jesus. We want. We just want to be a disciple of Christ. Um, do you just kind of tune out a lot of this and and just, you know, go for go for the gospel? Or, you know, what would you say well, to the a, average Christian there's a big, here? There's a big difference between tuning it all out and being obsessed with it. Okay. I, I would, you know, I... My, my friend Rodrer, what I thought was a very courageous book, uh, Live Not by Lies, in which he talked to a lot of the Christians who survived in Eastern Europe and in Russia during the incredible persecutions of the communist era. And what he found them doing was placing an emphasis on their own homes, on Christian mm. education, on prayer. I mean, to me, one of the biggest decisions Christian parents face today is at what age to give their child a smartphone. Mm-hmm. And if your pastor isn't talking about that issue or where, what school you're sending your, uh, your kids to, then you're not actually dealing with the moral issues at the heart of our culture. And that mm-hmm. has a lot more to do with the future of your family than whether you're going to get out and march for some political candidate. Yeah. Make a tough choice. Actually talk to your children about moral issues and smartphones and online pornography and the real brass issues. Mm. Um, mm. And, and it would help if our pastors talked a lot more about those issues too, but they're also scared of that because they know how yeah. upset that yeah. will make people. <laughs> Which would be more dangerous talking about Donald Trump or talking about smartphones? Mm-hmm. I would argue probably the latter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, okay, Terry. I hate it when people. I hate it when people ask me questions like this. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask you final words. Okay. <laughs> final. Any final words for us? Any final words? When I was at Denver Seminary, the late Haddon Robinson and I came up with a definition of discipleship that said, came down to these questions. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? And how do you make your decisions? How do you spend your time? How do you spend Hmm. your money? And how do you make your decisions? I would argue that if most pastors really looked at those questions, they're going to get back to their – they're going to have to talk to their people about their media lives and the practical details of what goes on in their homes. And I would say that pastors are just as scared of that as they are any other topic in American life. Wow. How do you spend your time, your money, and what was the last thing? And how do you make your decisions? Make your decisions. Well, that's fantastic. Okay. 
Terry, this is great. Thank you so much for giving us some time tonight. I appreciate it. And uh, we will, of course, have you back in another three years, or I think sooner. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll do an entire session talking about guitars and guitar strings. There we go. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Okay, Terry. God okay. bless you. Thanks so okay. much. Bye-bye. The Catch with John Fisher on Well, there you go, folks. I hope you enjoyed that. That was uh, quite a uh, qu- quite a road to follow. May need to hear this one again. Uh, that was exciting. God bless you. Help us to keep focused on the right thing in this crazy world. God bless you. Bye-bye. We'll see you next week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.